0: You're listening to the Know the Cause podcast with Doug Kaufman. Visit us online at knowthecause.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash knowthecause.
1: Doug Kaufman here. I'm sitting here with Greg Emerson as a medical doctor, Dr. Greg Emerson from Brisbane, Australia, and his lovely friend, Emma, who has known Greg for, what, four or five years?
0: Coming up four years. Four years, and
1: every year you come out with him. Um, I want to start this segment by enticing our listeners to really get into this segment because what the three of us know is something special and it's really, Emma, the way you two met. Um, Dr. Emerson had heard of Fungus maybe in his medical training but saw me on Know the Cause all the way across the world and got in touch with me. So there's a house on my drive to work, uh, to the studio here, and it's for sale years ago, a decade ago, for $50,000 and I told Ruth, wow, I want to buy that house because the rental income in my old age will help help me get retired. So I made an appointment and went in the house. I'm telling you, I walked into the front stair and I started hacking coughing. There was mold in that house so bad, I can't even tell you. I of course walked out and said to the realtor, "No thanks." The realtor went in and talked to the people for 20 minutes, you know, and then left. And she said, "What is mold?" And I said, "Well, you'll know one day when you're diagnosed with a horrible problem." <laughs> Uh, Six months later, I'm driving to work. The house sold. I'm driving to work, and an ambulance is out front, and they're wheeling somebody out, a heart attack or something in that home. Mm. I've gotta wonder how much human illness takes place around mold and the fungi they make, and I understand you were living in a home before you met Greg that was horrible, horrible, horrible with
0: mold. Yeah, that's correct. It was uh, water-damaged. So it had been flooded and left to go moldy, and I renovated just a quick Band-Aid reno. So I moved in, thinking it was beautiful.
1: But I gotta ask you, you didn't know all that?
0: I didn't know anything about mold, no. No No. idea, it was just mold. And then
1: along came the doc. I mean, you two met, thank God, you two met, and he said, get out of there. Mm. And you left a little note, said to the next tenant, Call me. I, call need me. To t- <laughs> right. I have to tell you
0: something. <laughs> and
1: somebody threw that note away really quickly. But I want to talk a little bit while I have you both here about the impact. You've worked in the clinic yeah. with Greg? Yeah, I worked um, in the clinic. About the impact that this discovery of mold has made in your practice, in your lives. Obviously, it probably saved your life
2: at a young age. Mm. Uh, patients, do you routinely investigate mold now? Oh, it's part of my... Uh, I ask them about, have they lived on a farm? Have they been exposed to chemicals? Have they been exposed to mould? But in Queensland, the answer is yes, because there's high mould spores in the air. Of course, you don't want to compound that by living in... It's a very, very humid part of the world. It's 90% humidity at the moment, so you have to kind of cut the air to walk through it. Oh. So you, if, unless you've got kind of a, a, a big open house on the beach mm-hmm. you're going to have a problem with mold unless you're actively fighting it and you know dehumidifiers are really a must in the house um and we use a hepa filter as well oh, yeah. and uh, we ozone the house occasionally because it's a huge problem but we've seen that coming out of the literature you and i send articles back and forth there was a big the, the problem with mold in florida recently and then. We, uh, I sent that article about the Australian oncologist who was told, in the, told the cancer patient that she has to get out of the mouldy house. Uh, so it might not be for the right reason. I think they're worried about them becoming sick from the mould because they have the chemotherapy. But you and I know there are art- scientific articles coming out now saying that mould might be mm. causing the cancer rather than just being a result of it. So... The, the information that you have been saying for 10, 20 years is slowly starting to get out there into mainstream medicine. You, now. Uh, so we know mold exists from Emma's experience, your experience, and your meeting each other, which was
1: fortuitous. The bigger question I get from doctors, and by the way, this show has been such a gift to so many doctors who have learned and contacted me and are now investigating like you are. In your practice, do you see mold and the poisons that these molds make directly linked to some of the symptoms or diseases that the patients have?
2: Oh, well I think the evidence now for the, the overgrowth or the infection with microbes uh, is just overwhelming. Uh, the The tie-in with the mitochondria, which you and I have discussed previously, where we produce energy in the body and our immune system requires energy. Uh, The the data coming out now on mycotoxins damaging the mitochondria, uh, chronic bacteria that cause these autoimmune diseases Mm. and the tie-in with mould and chronic bacteria. And we now know that it's not bacteria, viruses or mould. It's usually a giant melting pot of all of them. But we know that they... They're very, very smart. All these organisms have been around for billions of years. We wouldn't have this planet without the organisms because these organisms, the fungi, breaks down rock into soil. So it has its role, but when it gets out of control, all these organisms start to damage us. They damage the mitochondria. The mitochondria produce our energy. Our immune system is incredibly energy dependent. So all of these organisms are very, very clever. They're they're way ahead of us in the war, and they are paralyzing our immune systems, which means now we can't get rid of them. Of course, what happens is that you then get a chronic disease, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, whether it's diabetes, whether it's this epidemic of autoimmune disease, all these microbes are involved, they've all paralyzed our immune system, and we start getting symptoms, and then, then we get put on um, immune suppressant drugs, hmm. which decrease our immune system, which, it's kind of like you have to throw water on the fire, but in the end you have to work out why why the fire is starting in the first place, and that's one of the great problems with the. It's interesting though when you see when you first go to a rheumatologist, the first medication you might get put on is sulfasalazine and plaquenil, both of which are antimicrobial. Some of them are antifungal. Some of them are antibacterial. They don't really recognise why you're being put on them, but ultimately they're antimicrobial. And the only reason that you get better from an antimicrobial is because there's a microbe causing the problem. And if, if you and I know that the microbe is often a mould or a bacteria or a virus. So the problem by having your immune system suppressed is, yes, you get rid of your symptoms, but that microbe is going to be with you for the rest of your life. And, and I sent you that video I did on thistle. When I get a thistle thorn in my hand from foraging for thistles, I get an inflammatory response around that thistle, which eventually causes the skin over the thistle to die and the thistle comes out. If I block that inflammatory response, I'm never going to get rid of the thistle. You go on immunosuppressants, you go on medication which decreases immune system, which is what the microbes are doing in the first place, you're never going to get rid of the microbe. The mould is going to stay with you, the bacteria is going to stay with you, the Borrelia from Lyme disease, the viruses that we're finding now that, that are still persisting in the body are going to stay with you for the rest of your life, which is why you have your fibromyalgia, your rheumatic diseases, your lupus stays with you for the rest of your life. Chronic fatigue. Chronic Symptoms fatigue. Like
1: it's. I'll never forget, you guys, I was reading a Time magazine in an airport 12, 15 years ago. The cover said Alzheimer's disease, cancer, heart disease. Do they all share a common denominator? And then it said, yes, they do, inflammation. And it showed someone with the wrist you know, that was all red and inflamed and so forth. And it was probably two or three months later I was... Studying this along comes a test called a c-reactive protein. We can now take a patient's blood and say wow you have inflammation going on You're a sitting duck for cancer Parkinson's or, or uh, Alzheimer's etc. And then I read a study a year or two later that said that Systemic mycoses so once this fungus this isn't vaginal uh, this isn't ringworm, you know This isn't scalp fungus systemic mycoses means it got in your bloodstream It's now in your liver, in your heart. Your blood is circulating it. Systemic mycoses elevate C-reactive protein. So I'm thinking when Dr. Emerson is talking about he's seeing arthritis in these patients, he's seeing the the red, the swollen, the patient gets up in the morning and cries in pain. Do we throw an anti-inflammatory at it? Or do we start looking at maybe the fungus, the mold, the bacteria in that patient's life? Uh, and so it's so rare to find someone like you. By the way, were you symptomatic when you, Emma, when you started, uh, when you met Greg, were you having health problems?
0: Um, about four weeks after I moved into that house, I felt sick here. Yeah, I could barely move. How did it
1: manifest? Sick? With- um,
0: I could, it's more systemic, so I could barely move, just um, sort of wow. migratory pains, fibromyalgic symptoms, fatigue, great fatigue.
1: And and because you two liked each other, Greg came over to your house and he doesn't get to do that with all the patients, but he tells the funniest story about walking in that house and going, holy cow, I do like her. I got to get her out of here. And it was an ugly home.
2: It was a terrible home. I had a quick look around, couldn't see much, but then I went underneath the house uh, and uh, there was just mold all underneath the floorboards in the house. Frothing. (laughs) Pretty common out there.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Subtropical. Yeah, lots of mold.
1: So... I'm not gonna go here with you, but I'll go here with you with your patients. Do you see these people, because they say a human yeast cell or fungal cell uh, as symbionts that live together, both have a membrane, cell membrane, both have a nucleus, both have DNA and so forth. But one of them's dominant when you have a systemic mycosis, a fungal infection, and that is the fungal cell. These patients begin craving breads, pasta, alcohol, sugar, Had you gone down that line?
0: Um, No, I've always been pretty pristine with my diet. Okay.
1: um, So many of these patients will sit down and you'll do a diet diary on them, Dr. Emerson, and you just can't believe what they're eating, not to satisfy them, but to satisfy a living organism that is demanding that they eat that way.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt these organisms need to be fed. We know that uh, these guys feed on uh, yeast and processed carbohydrates, so you get the craving. But the science is also showing that now with, uh, again, these fancy terms they come out with, with the idea of leptin. And we now know the more weight you put on, the human body wants to store weight because it's used to famine. It goes, okay, if I've got a chance to source, store some fuel now, I'm gonna store it. And it wants to hold on to that weight. So the trouble with weight is as the more you put on, uh, the harder it is to get rid of. And the body has this uh, thing called leptin, which means as you start to lose weight, the leptin levels start to decrease. And as leptin levels decrease, you start to get depressed and you start to crave carbohydrates. So, and we've all had that. We've all we've all gone okay. So I'm I'm losing weight, but uh, I really feel like uh, having some sugar. And you get on that terrible sugar cycle where you can't get off it. Finally, you kick in feel good. But we now know the whole inflammation leptin. It all comes down to often the overgrowth of these organisms mm-hmm. in our body which demand us to eat carbohydrates because it's their fuel source. When you see a morbidly obese patient, 100 pounds
1: overweight or 200 pounds overweight, that's a pretty deep well, isn't it? There isn't a thing. You know, The patient comes in and wants a diet pill. You know? There isn't one thing. You have to investigate. You and I talked about this, Emma, psychology. You have to investigate physiology. You've got to investigate anatomy. How are they holding up you know, with those bones? For a doctor to just say we're going to do bariatric surgery really doesn't
2: address the etiology. Something's going on in that patient's uh, background. Absolutely. You talked about inflammation. It's the same thing. Inflammation's not a magic thing which suddenly appears, it's a process. It, something's causing the inflammation, something's causing the weight gain. Um, and it's a matter of, it's something's causing, everyone talks about leaky gut. Yeah. Leaky gut's not something magical, which you, you sometimes just comes out of nowhere. There's something which makes your gut leak. It's a fancy term for irritable bowel. Well, sure, your bowel's irritable, but there's something making it irritable. And if you, if you keep, I remember once that I was writing a book on goji berries and somebody mm-hmm. had written down in a book that... Uh, goji berries increase growth hormone levels. I thought, well, that's fascinating. Let me have a look. And I went back to the study which they showed and uh, they just quoted the the figure and they quoted the statement. And I had to go back 10 or 12 references before I finally found what was the um, underlying problem or the, the underlying research. And the underlying research had been on two rats, where goji berries had increased growth hormone levels. And again, so sometimes you've got to look at this research and, and ask where does where it come from? We did the same thing with prostate cancer. People said testosterone causes prostate cancer. We went back and looked and found that wasn't actually the case at all. It was just something something that people quote. So you've got to look at where the research from this stuff comes from. You always got to look for the underlying cause. Do you, Emma, you now live on 50 acres. We do. Uh, and you are
1: self-sustaining, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. You, I can't, you know. To me, this is a bit of a fantasy. I think to every guy, we like to almost vicariously live it. We'll watch you on TV, live your life, but we don't wanna go out and, and twist the necks on the chickens and we don't wanna go out and grind up the, the berries and pluck the fruit and wash it and so forth. But you guys are doing it. And Greg has often said, this isn't an experiment, this is all well documented. How different is this at your ages uh, than you were shopping at a store 10 years ago? I mean. You've taken on this lifestyle. Have you found it challenging, enjoyable, overwhelming, demanding? What, what, how, how is it going?
0: Um, it's it is challenging. It's a lot of hard work, but it's very fulfilling. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For me, I love it. I love getting my hands in the earth and, and planting. And cre- I'm a creative person at, and by nature, so for me, it's just an extension of my creativity. I'm gardening, um, animals. You just it's, love it's, all of that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It really is amazing.
1: You, uh, you're not in the medical field. As a matter mm. of fact, you produced a child show, a child. A kid, I, kid I'm, a show.
0: I'm, yeah. I used to be a performer, so yeah. I did ballet till I was 19, and then I did musical theater and musicals. Then
1: she, she just looks <laughs> at all of a hundred pounds soaking wet, and uh, and that's that's a rare combo that you would end up on this ranch working the soil mm. each and every day. This isn't something where you two can say take a week off. I mean, you've got to work this place. And yeah, when you're taking work. this week off, there are hands, you know, moving that, feeding the animals mm. and, and doing all of that. Any problem, okay, I've got to ask it. I know the listeners want to hear it. And I'm going to ask you, Emma, am, any problem killing, sacrificing an animal that you befriended? It's
0: really funny because I've always uh, loved animals, sometimes more so than humans. Um, <laughs> so... For me, I, it was challenging when we first moved onto the farm to be able to sort of um, detach myself from the emotional connection that I had with animals.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but it's it's definitely possible. Uh, I'll admit that Greg does all the yeah, yeah. all the butchering.
2: You do that yourself. Uh, I do the smaller animals. But when you get a cow or something, I get you a got a home, to take him, I get a butcher. home butcher to come in. It's a it's a three
1: man job. But Greg, uh, this isn't a cow that's been fed xeranol. A
2: hormone that's been on antibiotics. I mean, they forage. They they're out on your land. They they eat my grass and they roam around on. It's it's rainforest and so about twenty about half of the farm is uh, rainforest and the other half is pasture and they roam around on the pasture and they eat the grass, and the only thing they get supplemented with is some natural minerals and natural seaweeds. This isn't grass that you go
1: around with a chemical killer and kill the weeds. I mean, this, is, this cow is about as
2: pure as pure as cows be. They, they, cow. they're, they're purely grass-fed cows. They get fed nothing but grass, and they thrive, and they're phenomenally healthy.
0: They're wild.
2: How is the meat?
0: Yeah, it's great. It's amazing.
2: Have you guys gone out to dinner at
1: a restaurant and they said, yeah, yeah, it's all grass-fed? And you know in your heart (laughs) when you cut into that, it is not grass-fed because you've had the real thing.
2: Well, we've been experimenting with traditional ways of cooking the meat as well, which has been a fascinating journey for us. And we watch a lot of the uh, uh, American barbecue shows on TV, which have become very fashionable. And we're learning about smoking meat. And I'm running courses now in New Zealand teaching people about uh, using uh, uh, cooking meat underground with hot stones. And uh, we're learning about ways of cooking meat which are traditional and, surprise, surprise, turn out to be much healthier because you're not getting the damage to the proteins in the meat and the advanced glycation end products Another fancy term for damaging the meat when you cook it. We, we we found out, and again, we spent time in Sedona with an Apache elder, and he said, yeah, that's how we cooked our meat traditionally, because we knew it was much better for us. You, the, you know, the, the, the Native Americans weren't slapping a, a slice of bison in a frying pan and cooking it up with some polyunsaturated oils. Sure. They were using slow cooking techniques, and mm. we now know slow cooking meat avoids all the damage. People say, meat is bad for you. Really? Because we've been eating it for several million years and that's how we evolved as a species. The question is, what type are you eating? And what type of meat are you eating? And how are you cooking it? That's what's critical. In, In closing this, it's kind of interesting to watch the big fast food
1: companies make a blanket statement, a heroic blanket statement. Like, we're no longer gonna use antibiotics in our meat. And mothers and dads are saying, great. Then we're gonna honor that fast food restaurant. Folks, here's what you need to know. I think what's happened here is the old switcheroo. Um, we found that a hormone, a mycotoxin, an estrogenic mycotoxin uh, called zearalenone, has formed into a, a, a chemical called xeranol that is fed to these animals now, these cows, and guess what xeranol does? It increases their weight. So they don't need the antibiotics anymore. And I think it's all sleight of hand that they're now telling us, hey, we will not. Boy, we're gonna come up against that wall and we care for you people and we're gonna take care. We're not putting antibiotics anymore. Shh, what we're putting in there is a different mycotoxin. Remember, antibiotics are mycotoxins, fungal metabolites. We're putting one in that I believe is the reason we're seeing eight and nine year old girls develop breasts and boys' voices change when they're eight or nine years old. We're accelerating precocious, we're inducing precocious puberty in these young children all because for some reason or another, we gotta make that cow fatter and fatter instead of caring about the health of the people eating it. You guys are amazing. I could go on another 20 minutes and I know all the earbuds. You guys want to keep them in, don't you, and continue listening? We'll have more segments uh, like this. This couple is extraordinary and we're honored that you're here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having us, Doug. Thank you for listening to the Know the Cause podcast with Doug Kaufman. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to give us a five star rating on iTunes or tell a friend. For more, visit us online at knowthecause.com or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash knowthecause.